And with that, we'll get started with Grand Rounds today, and I will welcome um, Dr. David Nirenberg, Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology and um, Chief of Pharmacology and Toxicology to uh, present today's presenter. Thanks very much, Kelly. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce my good friend, wonderful colleague, an internationally known clinical pharmacologist, Dr. Lionel Lewis. Uh, Dr. Lewis received his uh, initial training in college at Trinity College in Cambridge, um, then went back to Wales, where he was born, University of Wales College of Medicine, where he took his early training in medicine and surgery, and in their crazy system of degrees, received his bachelor's degrees in both medicine and surgery. He then went to University of Wales Hospital in Cardiff, where he undertook his residency training and went on to move to London to Guy's Hospital from 1982 to 1989, where he was a lecturer in clinical pharmacology and did his training in that field at that time. During that time, he went back to University of Wales to receive his MD degree, um, which is not the norm in England, but is an added qualification in medicine. From 1989 to 1991, uh, he was at Johns Hopkins doing American fellowship training in clinical pharmacology, and I had the very good luck through my colleagues at Johns Hopkins to meet Lionel at that time. And although he had to return to England for several years for visa requirements, I kept him in mind, and when he became eligible uh, to move back to the United States, I grabbed him immediately as the best trained clinical pharmacologist I knew uh, at that time in the United States, and we were so lucky to recruit him and his wife to come to Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and Dartmouth Medical School. From 1993 to 2003, Lionel rose rapidly through the ranks, assistant to associate to full professor of medicine and pharmacology, and now is so well established at Dartmouth, you can find him everywhere. For example, if you work in the cancer center, uh, he currently co-directs the Cancer Center's Center for Molecular Therapeutics program, its phase one research group where he is their leading light, and its clinical pharmacology shared service, and also serves as the medical director for the Dartmouth Clinical Trials Office. Most recently, Lionel was appointed as the first American editor for the British Journal of Clinical Pharmacology for eight years, and also served as an international editor and reviews board member, and he has served on the editorial committees of all of the major clinical pharmacology journals in the United States, also in England, uh, and also is the current national director or executive director of the American Board of Clinical Pharmacology in charge of the overall maintenance of quality in all clinical pharmacology training programs in the United States. Lionel continues to serve as the Vice Chair of the Pharmacogenetics and Population Pharmacology Committee of the Alliance of Clinical Trials in Oncology and NCI Intergroup, and he has served uh, on review committees for both NIH study sections and Department of Defense study section as well. At last count, he has more than 150 peer-reviewed publications in the most excellent journals in clinical pharmacology topics and has co-edited several editions of his uh, very famous and well-used textbook in clinical pharmacology published in England. His research, which is mostly phase one translational research in cancer patients, receiving very often first time in man 
drugs directed against various malignancies is currently funded by the NCI and several of the larger pharmaceutical companies. His main area of scientific expertise and interest is the clinical pharmacology, pharmacokinetics, and pharmacodynamics of novel anti-cancer drugs with novel mechanisms of action, often including their metabolism uh, and taking advantage of quirks in that metabolism. Dr. Lewis has extensive experience in first-time-in-man studies um, of new drugs and proof-of-principle studies as well in the cancer patients referred to him by his colleagues in oncology and hematology. So it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Lewis as an internationally known clinical pharmacologist, phase one translational scientist, uh, local expert on everything having to do with rugby, especially Welsh rugby, and I love coming to work every day, not only so that I can ask him my most difficult clinical questions, but also find the latest scores on how the latest version of the Welsh women's rugby team just beat the men's French rugby team. So, <laughs> Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for being our speaker today. So, can, uh, is this on, guys? Sorry. Right. So thanks very much, Dave, for that uh, illustrious uh, and uh, lengthy introduction. I'd add one or two minor comments. Um, I, I didn't actually coach the Welsh women's rugby team, but if you've ever played mixed rugby, some, some of the guys get very mixed up about the anatomy and the purpose of achieving the rugby ball. Um, so if you think about that, it's sort of something that often occurs when you're playing mixed rugby. So without further ado, um, what I wanted to talk to you about today was I wanted to give you uh, an insight into what I'm going to call individualized therapeutics. And we're hearing a lot about precision medicine. Um, and I want to sort of contrast uh, the, the historical versus the modern uh, views of how we think about uh, exacting the most optimal therapy for our patients. But I'm reminded by our CME colleagues that I have to declare everything I've got except for my bank account uh, balance currently, which if my wife had anything to do with it, is pretty low. Um, but I do get, as Dave mentioned, I get support from various national uh, federal institutes. Uh, I'm supported also for research studies from a number of large pharmaceutical companies. I actually work as a consultant for uh, study sections, and I also am a consultant for G1 Therapeutics. But I'm also employed by Dartmouth College, and I think it's important to mention that. The reason being that Dartmouth College has an interest, actually, in a number of drugs that are currently in use in oncology because they set up and helped set up a, a fledgling company called Medirex, which sold some of their products to BMS and are now being used in, uh, as checkpoint therapy. But perhaps you'll know me better as the wider part part of the, the section of clinical part of oncology, because I'm probably a bit wider around the breast and around the shoulders and Davis. So those are my conflict of interests. Okay, so what am I going to tell you about? What I, what I wanted to do today is I wanted to review some of the clinical uh, pharmacology principles, but highlighted in a case of acute re, uh, kidney injury. And then we'll go on to present and talk about some of the complexities of clinical studies and how we define and analyze those studies when we're looking at how best to treat and use drugs in patients with renal dysfunction, and similarly, do design studies and analyze them in patients with hepatic dysfunction. So that's where we're going to go, and those are the objectives of my, my presentation. 
So this is just, uh, it's not actually mine, this was defined some years ago. This is the way I think about drugs. So we have a drug dose, and we give that dose, be it parenterally or orally, or some route, and we achieve a concentration in the biological fluid, usually the blood because it's, we can measure it. But that fluid then circulates and produces a concentration at the target effect tissue site. And hopefully that, that concentration there will give us our pharmacological effect, which we want to be therapeutic. But this isn't the same in the same individual over time, and it certainly isn't the same between individuals across a population. I'll give you the example that an average Welsh rugby player can drink at least six pints of beer with an alcohol content of about 6 to 7% before he starts to become dysfunctional with his cerebellum. If you contrast that to your average English rugby player, who's nowhere near as broad or as wide, they can only go to about four pints of sort of fairly solid beer. However, the point being, there is intra and inter-individual variability in how the body handles and responds to drugs. And it goes across this paradigm. But the variability is sort of led by some areas of pharmacokinetics here. Remember, this is Greek for drug over time, and these processes, absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion, are the primary processes by which the body produces the concentration drug profile. But at the same time, we also have the target of our drug therapy, and we have, whoops. I did it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought that was me. I thought, yeah, sure. So we have the target of our drug therapy, which might be a protein, a channel, an enzyme, and that pharmacodynamic target also has variability. But crossing these two domains is the DNA of the patient. And crossing these domains, because it's the DNA, is the majority of the targets are proteins of some form, either subunits for a larger molecular uh, protein, or they might indeed be active sites. But the DNA of the patient plays into all of these processes. And we're hearing a lot more about genetics because in two, just in early 2001, we had the first publication in Nature and in Science of the human genome. It took about 12 years. It uh, was published in, in, in both major scientific journals, and it showed how extensive the, the genome is. But what it did also show is that there are various genes which affect the variability of how the patients handle drug and respond to drug. And we're hearing more and more about it, and going down the line, we're going to be more engaged and informed about how to use this data. But what I want to suggest here is that, in fact, this is just another supplementary tool to getting the patient's dose, choice of drug and also dose of drug optimal for a patient. So this guy, he was an Englishman, unfortunately, but I won't hold that against him. He was an English biologist, uh, geologist, and botanist who became a physician in the mid-1700s. And he trained in the, Edinburgh, um, the University of Edinburgh Medical School. And then he became a hospital consultant in Birmingham, in northwest England. And his name is William Withering. And he came across a health healer going around treating patients who had what was called dropsy, which is severe conge congestive heart failure, and heard that this lady was going around treating them with various herbal remedies or mixtures thereof. So what he did is he tracked down this woman, and eventually he got out of her that what she was using was actually a distillate or, a, or some sort of form, a formulation of the foxglove. So what William Withering did is he took the extract, an alcoholic extract, a tincture of the leaves of, of Digitalis purpurea, and used that to go around and treat patients with dropsy 
And what he did is he titrated his dose, the number of drops of his tincture, to the patient's heart rate. And I would, I would propose to you that this is one of the first examples of individualization of therapy, which is what we all want to achieve. And this guy really was a clinical pharmacologist, because that's what we do. We think about how to get the dose and the schedule and the drug choice right for our patients. What he did and went on and do then is he went and published this account of his about 12 patients as a thesis, and he presented this in 1785. So the concept of individual therapeutics has been around for centuries. What we're doing now is we're refining it with the addition of genetics as an additional tool to make us even more precise. So, determinants of drug response. There have been a number of publications about this as to what components of the body, what components of a patient attribute or contribute to drug responses and in variation in drug response. My own personal bias are the following particular entities. I believe age is an issue, the young, the middle-aged, the elderly. Diet, we know the stories about how things like grapefruit juice and other juices. We know also about now the panoply of drugs that we have, somewhere in the order of four and a half to nearly 5,000 formulations that we can actually prescribe, and how they interact and cause problems or maybe enhance the ability to achieve a therapeutic response. And then there's organ dysfunction, particularly organ dysfunction of the two organs that clear drugs from the body, which are the kidney and the liver, the disease severity, and the genetics of our patients. But I'm going to focus today my discussion on organ dysfunction. And according to this little diagram, that could contribute up to about 12% of the variability in drug, re drug response. So let's go and deal with a case. So some years ago, um, we were contacted... And the case is as follows, 56-year-old male who essentially presented with a three to four week history of swelling and a non-painful swelling in his right testes. Um, his past medical history was relevant, that he had coronary artery disease, he had a percutaneous angioplasty several years before this, he had type 2 diabetes mellitus and hyperlipidemia, and physical exam confirmed that indeed he did have a mass in his right testicle, it was irregular, it was non-tender, it wasn't fluctuant. Bottom line was they were concerned about the possibility of testicular cancer. He underwent uh, workup and subsequent surgery and histology and imaging showed him that he had a seminoma stage 2A. Our oncological colleagues at that time recognized that following uh, uh, the removal of the tumor, uh, the best approach was to give him adjuvant therapy with this regimen that was originally defined in Indianapolis in the University of Indiana by Lawrence Einhorn, and give him three, three cycles of bleomycin, etoposide, and cisplatin, which gives you something like a 90% chance of cure rate in this particular disease at this stage. So the gentleman went on, he had his first cycle of therapy, seemed to be doing okay, but lo and behold, towards the middle of that cycle, he developed neutropenia, he developed a septic syndrome, and had to be admitted with hypotension and acute kidney injury. And the bottom line was, he was probably in septic hypotensive renal dysfunction, as evidenced by his uh, investigations at the time. It was deemed required a necessity at that point that he undergo hemodialysis three times a week, and that was initiated. But then our friends in medical oncology said, hey, we've got to continue this therapy. It's curative. Get on with it. So... They called a few people, they talked to some people, and they wondered, how should we dose this regimen? 
So the reality is we've got to do some board questions here, and you guys are going to be the candidates. So how would you think about defining what doses of this particular combination are effective and safe in this particular patient? So how are you going to do it? Well, our friends in nephrology are experts about glomeruline and tubules and parenchyma and renal flow and urine excretion, etc. So maybe we should consult the nephrologist. That's just a reasonable idea. Some of us, not all of us, think that we should go and look up the appropriate texts. So we go to UpToDate, we go to Lexicomp, we go to the NCCN guidelines, or any other guideline you can find on the web. Potentially another option is to say, hey, what are you thinking about, like, oh, Lewis? You're going to treat a guy who's already got acute kidney injury, is in acute renal failure, and you're going to give him that nephrotoxin called cisplatin? You are out of your tiny Welsh brain. <laughs> or you consult a radiologist. Now, they're an interesting group of people. They go, they go by the dain of shadows and images and patterns, and they can tell you the size and this, that, and the other. But I'm not so sure they really know about this sort of drug treatment. Or the final option is you talk to a Celt who enjoys a thing called Lagavulin, which is one of the most peaty Scottish malt whiskies you can get with about 48 parts per million of polyphenols. So based on our, our questions, guys, I'll help you out. You know what? If you consult the radiologist, you've got the wrong Lewis. <laughs> she doesn't like these questions. She really doesn't. And don't ever call her after about 9 o'clock at night. So what do you think the right answer is? So in my mind, you consult the Celt who occasionally has a glass of malt whiskey. So that's what we did. So we decided that based on what we know, and looking back at the clinical studies that helped us figure this out, that bromycin could be used with a 50% reduction. Etoposide, because it's about 50% cleared through the kidney, etoposide could be given a 40% dose reduction, because although it's metabolized, it also has some renal, renal clearance. And we could give a reduced dose of cisplatin on this schedule, and hopefully using the clinical studies that have defined the amount of drug cleared through this org the renal organs, we could achieve a safe but effective exposure to these particular drug combinations. We gave the drugs post-hemodialysis because we didn't want the dialysis to actually excrete these drugs. We wanted them to stay around in a reduced dosage. And there was some preclinical data that suggested, although it hasn't been shown to be, it hasn't been clinically proven to be effective, that given some N-acetylcysteine may, may mitigate a little bit or reduce the amount of nephrotoxicity of cisplatin. So this is what we did. And the patient did actually pretty well on this. He, he didn't develop a further episode of neutropenic sepsis and went on and did okay. So this is an example where knowing the information from clinical studies helped us figure out a very individualized dosing regimen. So what I want to do now is to go on and talk a little bit about some of the studies that I've been involved with over the, over the years that talk about the design and the analysis of trying to figure out how you should best use some of these drugs in patients with either varying degrees of renal dysfunction or varying degrees of hepatic dysfunction. And I have to say that these aren't studies that were just performed here. They were performed either through international, uh, yeah, national groups like the Alliance or even international collaborations across to, the, to Europe with the Netherlands and many, many institutions across the USA who are cancer centers.
So I want to talk first about a novel class of compounds called peptidobodies. These are proteins which are about 64 kilodaltons molecular weight, which means they've got somewhere in the region of about 630 amino acids. And they have an FC portion typical of, a monoco of an antibody, which is shown here. That gives it its sort of longevity in, this, in the circulation. But they've got a hinge region, and then they have two uh, variable regions, which are the targeting regions. This targets the epitope that you want to bind to. And these things bind to their targets with nanomolar affinity. They're generally produced from Chinese hamster ovary cells, and some of those cells have to have integrated into their genome some specific human enzymes to produce galactose or saliation and glycosylation that is specific to human proteins. But this class of, of compounds is relatively new. Uh, to my knowledge, there's none of them on the market currently, so I'm going to talk about a non-FDA-approved non compound, but I'm not going to advocate its use. I'm just going to tell you how we studied it. So this is AMG386, now known as Trubananib. It's an Amgen product. Um, it binds to, in this case, angiopoietin 1 and angiopoietin 2. And these characters are proangiogenic proteins that bind to the TI2 receptor, which on their binding stimulate angiogenesis. Thus, by binding to these particular proangiogenic proteins, AMG386 is an anti-angiogenic peptide body. The drug itself was, uh, appeared to be quite effective in solid uh, tumor xenografts in preclinical models. And based on its size and structure, empirically, we felt that there probably wasn't a huge amount of renal excretion, just on its, based on its size. A phase one study conducted uh, in 2009, 36 patients, showed that the drug was well tolerated over this dose range. And really the pharmacokinetics showed that it was peaked at the end of the infusion and it had linear kinetics in that the CMAX near in the curve increased in a linear proportion to the dose. The half-life was pretty long, somewhere between three to six days, and the clearance was pretty slow. So we wanted to do a study of this particular compound in patients with varying degrees of renal dysfunction. So my colleagues in Chicago, myself, and in the Alliance got together with Amgen, and we actually designed the study. The primary objectives of this study were to determine the effect of renal dysfunction on the PK, and also to look at the pharmacodynamics of toxicity and tolerability of this particular compound, which is delivered intravenously. It's a pretty complicated study, but I hope this, this diagram will help us get through it relatively straightforwardly. So we have patients with advanced refractory solid tumors, and we categorize them into different cohorts depending on their renal function. Here we have normal renal function, uh, we have mild, moderate, and severe renal dysfunction. And depending on what their renal function was, the patients got into these buckets. They then, if they're eligible and they filled all the other eligible criteria, they go forward and they receive this drug once a week at 15 mg per kilo, and they'd be followed on a weekly basis to check for toxicity. We'd have pre-infusion and post-infusion samples for PK, but at the end of week five, because this drug has such a long half-life, we thought the drug would be at steady state at this point. Then we would do a protracted sampling regimen, looking at blood in particular for the pharmacokinetics. At the end of that, if the patient was tolerating the medication well, they could continue, 
And we would evaluate for toxicity and tumor effect. And if the tumor remained either stable or there was a response, they'd continue on the drug on a weekly basis. And if there was evidence of progression of the tumor, they'd come off the study. I can tell you that two of the patients here that we treated on this study, one was with a patient with bladder cancer and another patient was a patient with renal cell cancer, they actually stayed on this medication for just under a year and did very, very well and tolerated it very well. So what are the results? So the results are shown in this graphic. Here we have the four different cohorts. We have the patients with normal renal function, with mild, moderate, and severe renal dysfunction. And as you can see, as you get increasing um, uh, renal dysfunction or increasing re reduction in your GFR, you start to see an increased exposure, which is most marked in the severe renal dysfunction group. If you take the PK from this particular thing and you do the anal analysis of the parameters, and I focused your attention on this table to look at the normal guys. This is the area under the curve for the normals. This is the Cmax and this is the clearance. And you can see that basically compared to the severe renal dysfunction, there's a three-fold increase in exposure and the, the, the clearance drops to about a third. So there's a significant effect of renal dysfunction on the handling of this drug, which was a little bit surprising, but when the, we went back and we did some additional preclinical models in nephrectomized animals, we, should, we found that in fact this was, should have been uh, figured out beforehand. But in human beings, significant reduction in clearance and a marked increase in exposure with this particular peptide body. Um, if you look at whether the clearance was related to the 24-hour urinary protein, there was no relationship uh, to the pre-protein urine content over 24 hours. So it didn't appear to necessarily be, be transported through the kidney via albumin. And from a toxicity point of view, just to show that we always monitor for this, the main problems were some nausea. Uh, we did have some GI issues. But the other thing was peripheral edema. A lot of patients developed marked peripheral edema, and some patients developed pleural effusions uh, and ascites on this drug. And that was, could, could be quite problematic for some of these patients. So in summary then, we found that this particular peptide body, which is a first in class, it's important to know about the renal clearance and the renal function because a significant amount of this is cleared through the kidney. It does seem to be that the lower the GFR, the lower the clearance. We did not think it was associated with albumin clearance. The tolerated dose was what we used. But we felt that if we were going to treat patients with this degree of renal dysfunction, we could probably at least change the dosing regimen to once every two weeks because there was an extension of half-life as well. So that's one example of a first-in-man study where we're actually doing it in patients with renal dysfunction. It wasn't the first in human ever, but it was the first time it had been given to patients with varying degrees of renal dysfunction. So, the next example I want to talk to you about is Topotica. This drug is FDA approved. It's a topo one isomerase inhibitor. It's used by some of the colleagues at the back in uh, treating their non-small cell lung cancer. It's also used for ovarian cancer and cervical cancer. Um, where we were interested in is it's a derivative of camptothecines, which are obtained from this particular plant. And it's a semi-synthetic uh, agent, which is synthesized, but it exists predominantly in the body as the lactone form, which is, in fact, the active agent that blocks the topoisomerase enzyme. It binds to the enzyme as the enzyme cleaves the single strand and allows single strand breaks to occur and subsequently inhibits replication. 
So it's pharmacology. It is a, it's a potent DNA topoisomerase inhibitor. Uh, its half-life is short. The lactone is a pH-dependent clearance. But if you look at the urine, you get somewhere between 50 to 60% of either the parent drug and or the active lactone excreted in the urine over about 24, 48 hours. So based on what we're discussing, if we do try to use this drug in patients with renal dysfunction, what do you think we have to do apart from study it to get the doses right? If it's this amount is cleared renally and our kidneys aren't working, we're going to find the standard doses produce toxic exposures, and therefore we're going to likely reduce dose, but we don't know by how much. So that's what we set out to do. So we set out to do a study of the topotecan in renal dysfunction patients. We wanted to look at the effect of, of the kidney dysfunction on the PK and on the PD, the clinical toxicity of this particular compound, how well it was tolerated, and it's normally given daily for five days. Quite a complicated design as well. Um, again, this study was not just carried out here. It was a collaborative study. It was actually carried out in, in uh, some of the southern cancer centers, Indiana, but also in the Netherlands. So we, in here, we had five groups. We had a normal renal function group, which was measured by 24-hour creatinine clearance. And we had a group that had pri-axis platinum therapy and those that didn't. We had mild renal dysfunction, moderate, and severe. And then the patients went on into this if they were eligible and filled all the eligibility criteria, and they were given the topotecan dose daily for five days. They were reviewed regularly. They were checked for hematological and biochemical toxicity. And we looked at the PK on day one, uh, primarily in the plasma. They then went on to a, a, a cycle. At the end of that cycle, they could continue on the drug if they, if they were tolerating it, and they would be followed for toxicity and tumor response. So the, the main results I'm going to focus on are the PK results. Uh, here is the numbers of, of patients in each of the cohorts. Remember, this is uh, with prior cisplatin, without prior cisplatin, mild, moderate, and severe renal dysfunction. And as you can see here, what happens is there's a general increase in exposure or area under the curve as you get increasing renal dysfunction. And the same is true for the CMAX. And the bottom line of this study was that the drug was, was, was causing, even at the doses we used and dose escalated, it caused a lot of GI problems, it caused hematological toxicity, which is not unexpected, and we also had a significant amount of lower GI problems as well. Um, the patients generally were able to tolerate the medication, but we did run into, into these hematological and GI toxicities. Where this led to was it led to the approval of this particular oral capsule of topotecan with the following caveat in the FDA labeling. What they, show, what they described in the FDA label, and this is directly from the label, is that with patients with this creatinine clearance, the study that was done here, the dose that was tolerated and shown to be reasonable was 2.3 mg per meter squared. And as you got increasing renal dysfunction, you had basically to drop the dose. And these were the number of patients. But this is now in the label for oral topotecan that my colleagues who are thoracic oncologists would consider for their non-small cell patients. So that gives you a sense of some of the design difficulties, the accrual difficulties, and also the complexity and intensity of the studies that are required to define the data to help us individualize those. So now let's move on to the cohort of people whose livers aren't working. So we've talked about the kidney guys. Let's talk about the people who have hepatic dysfunction. And I'm going to choose a couple of examples that I've been involved, luckily enough, to, to, as, as one of the study investigators. Um, the first one, if it comes up, 
the hedgehog pathway inhibitor. Oh yeah, the hedgehog. How many people have seen hedgehogs around this, this part recently? Yeah, right. So this is the hedgehog pathway. And what it is, is it's a, it's a proliferation pathway that signals through patch and smoothen that then releases a transcription factor that produces transcription of genes, particularly genes that are angiogenic, genes that are anti-apoptotic, that is, prevent programmed cell death, and also genes that uh, promote the cell cycle. And normally hedgehog binding to patch will inhibit this process. But in basal cell carcinomas, those carcinomas that are multiple skin tumors, there are mutations in these two particular proteins. And either there's loss of the patch function or there's constituent activation of smoothen, such that this pathway is overactive. And therefore, by inhibiting in fact, most targets target the smoothened protein as an antagonist. You can downregulate this pathway. And because basal cell carcinoma, this is constitutely turned on, what you have is a very, very effective therapy. And the, the, the only hedgehog pathway uh, compound that's currently approved is, this will come up, ah, yeah. So this is a patient, oops. This is a patient on, on one of our studies. This is a gentleman who had been having years and years of therapy, of more therapy, just taking off basal cells from parts of his body, literally whipping them out and then coming back several months later and having another one removed. And he got a bit fed up with this, but fortunately he was happy to come and try, try our study. And here you can see these are the multiple basal cells. This is Golin syndrome. And here you have the two months and this is after six months, you, can see, you could see these tumors melt away on this drug. And all on medication taken once a day. So it's really impressive and is approved for this indication. But we were interested in, in finding out what do we do if we want to treat patients, not so much with basal cell, but potentially with other tumors that have hepatic dysfunction. And the reason we were interested in that is the drug is targeting the same protein as cyclopamine which was an, a naturally occurring compound found in clover that yields the cyclops syndrome, where you get embryonic maldevelopment of midline structures. And this is the sheep with the one eye. So cyclopamine is found in clovers, and this was how it was originally found to be uh, embryotoxic, where they found animals with this particular malformation. And what we have now is, is this one particular compound called vismodigib that's an analog of that, it's an oral drug. It has funny, funny absorption, for quite a long half-life, almost entirely uh, metabolized by the, the CYP enzymes, and very little of it goes through the renal clearance mechanism. Therefore, based on our discussion, you would predict that even if I had somebody with significant renal impairment, it probably wouldn't compromise the exposure or the clearance of the drug. So we were interested in looking at people who had hepatic dysfunction and seeing what doses they could tolerate and how the pharmacokinetics would be changed. Again, we set up the study. Uh, we worked with colleagues in uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering in Chicago and with the, uh, obviously the drug company who owned it or have it. And we were looking at the PK after eight days of dosing and we wanted to determine uh, tolerability, that is, what, were there toxic effects, was it safe to continue dosing. And all these patients had advanced cancer which was refractory to standard therapy and also had varying degrees of hepatic dysfunction. And this is the sort of schema that we had 
uh, designed for this particular study. So here we have the patients. They all had what would be reasonable renal function, and then they had varying levels of uh, hepatic dysfunction. And these categorizations are, are part of what we call the NCI organ dysfunction criteria. Uh, the NCI organ dysfunction working group actually stole this design from the, what used to be the CALGB PET committee, PET being pharmacology and experimental therapeutics. Um, but we were originally in the 1990s the first to use this type of category Categorization of hepatic dysfunction to try and get patients with different levels or different degrees of hepatic dysfunction and study them and how they handle drugs. So if the patient was eligible or in one of these categories, they'd go forward, they'd have the drug for eight days, they'd be followed, we'd check labs and clinical uh, assessments, and then at day eight, we'd collect plasma and urine for PK sampling. At the end of, day, at the end of that, they could go forward if they were tolerating the drug and stay on the drug uh, depending on whether they, they got toxicity or we'd evaluate them at standard of care points for tumor response. And they could stay on this drug for some time. Uh, in fact, the gentleman I showed you who was in the study, uh, he was so um, impressed with the melting of his, particularly his facial basal cells, he was on this study for 15 months. The reason he came off, in fact, was he, he became incredibly tired. And one of the side effects is that it, it causes taste disturbance. And he just was fed up of not enjoying his food. <laughs> so he actually went, he stopped the drug. And it took a while for his, his basal cells to come back. And this is one of the big problems is this, this um, dyskinesia is a real issue with this particular drug. So we looked at the PK, and what I want to focus your attention on here is we looked at area under the curve, CMAX, steady state, and unbound. And comparing the different groups to the normal hepatic function, this is the ratio of these parameters. And as you can see, there's a slight elevation here in the, in the geometric mean, and there's a slight reduction here, but the confidence intervals across these data cross one. So there is no significant change based on these numbers in the pharmacokinetics as you go across the different degrees of hepatic dysfunction. And this is shown in, in just a different, in a box and whisker plot here. We looked at total drug at steady state, and we looked at free drug at steady state, and there was really no difference. The toxicity, as I mentioned, um, this dyskusia was problematic in my patient and many others, and the main issues were, were some GI problems that were, were significant but bearable in most cases because of the response we were getting, particularly in the basal cells, but we were also getting some responders in hepatocellular carcinoma patients who were in the study. So the conclusion from this study then was that the tolerable dose of 150 milligrams, which is the standard dose, seemed to have uh, not be affected significantly in patients with different levels up to severe renal dysfunction. It didn't need dose modification, but it was difficult to attribute drug exposure to toxicity of, of serious adverse effects because a very large number of the patients had hepatocellular carcinoma and their disease was progressing, causing worsening of their LFTs. So it, we didn't have a clear drug exposure toxicity relationship. Okay, now we come to the second part. We're all becoming and having to be more aware of drug costs, right? Correct? And oncology is one area where the drugs are incredibly expensive. So I thought it would be helpful to do a little boards exam. What is the cost of this particular compound that is available, oral medication, once a day, for 12 months? And I, and I 
produce some options that are homogeneous, that are in line with board standards, so you guys are being tested, okay? Is it Dr. Nuremberg's salary? <laughs> Could be, we don't know. Is it 75,000 a year? Is it 130,000 a year? Is it 225,000 a year? Is it Dr. Roster's salary? <laughs> or is it my salary before I get fired for telling you the exact values of options A and E? So what do you think, guys? Any thoughts? Anybody want to offer which of these options is the, is the real thing? If you look on goodrx.com, it's 130,000 a year. Hugely expensive. Okay, so in the last couple of minutes, I want to tell you about one of the most complicated studies. We've talked about looking at patients just with renal dysfunction and normal or looking at hepatic dysfunction with normal. This study of a drug called serafinib that is a multi-targeted kinase inhibitor that is approved for renal, metastatic renal cell, uh, for hepatic cellular carcinoma, or actually thyroid carcinoma, uh, is a drug that has been out now for several years. And we were interested some time ago in looking at whether this drug could be given safely and at what dose in patients with both hepatic dysfunction and renal dysfunction. And this study was um, run through the Alliance the, uh, of Clinical Trials in Oncology, which is the big intergroup study uh, cooperative. The, the drug itself, as I mentioned, is a multi-targeted kinase inhibitor. And for those who are interested in mechanism, it targets uh, RAF, it targets apoptosis, but it also targets signaling through PDGFR and VEGF, and also targets the, the uh, apoptotic pathway. So it's a combination of an antiogenesis agent, but it's also an antiproliferative agent. Um, its bioavailability is reasonable, long half-life. Hepatic metabolism, almost entirely hepatic metabolism, by CYP3A and a phase two metabolism of glucuronidation. The, the point about making the metabolic profile here is this oxidation process produces a, um, an, an, an N oxide, which is a metabolite that has a similar activity to the parent. So you have parent and the metabolite being part of it, but you only get about 20% of the dose converted to that particular metabolite. So hepatic dysfunction, perhaps more than renal dysfunction, is going to evolve a change in dosing. Renal excretion is really low, but the glucuronides, as you predict, because they're more polar, would actually be excreted by the kidney. So we put together the same sort of objectives in a phase one study. We wanted to determine the effect of different degrees of hepatic and renal dysfunction on the PK. We wanted to see how safe and how well tolerated it was in the patient population. This study took three years to complete. We had 11 centers throughout the US, part of the alliance, contributing patients to this study. Because as you can imagine, the patients with minor degrees of hepatic dysfunction might be relatively common, but as you go down the grades of hepatic dysfunction, these patients are rare and few and far between. So it took us a long time to do this study. Um, this is part of the study schema. It's sort of similar to the hepatic dysfunction studies. Here we have the patients. They all have reasonable renal function, but they, we have a normal group. We have mild, moderate, severe, and we also had a group who had lower albumin because of the biosynthetic. So they went forward, we gave them a single dose of serafinib, we did PK over that period, and then they went on to daily serafinib, and if they tolerated it via, or, and didn't develop toxicity, or they had response, they could stay on it. 
the renal dysfunction cohort was similar to the renal dysfunction cohorts I described before. So we were running two studies in parallel, really, over this period. And we had renal dysfunction, uh, mild, moderate, severe, and we also had uh, some patients with non-hemodialysis, and the same sort of principles. I'm going to focus, in view of the time, just on the PK study outcomes. Uh, the bottom line was, when we looked at the area under the curve, the plasma concentration time profile integrated, which is raised to exposure of drug, these are our normal patients, normal hepatic, normal renal. These 2, 4, 6, and 8 are the different levels of hepatic dysfunction, and 3, 5, 7, and 9 are the different levels of renal dysfunction. Bottom line is we were not able to define a change in pharmacokinetics on this single dose. This might be a limitation of this study because we only defined the PK after the first dose. Going forward from this study, we probably should have looked at it later on in, in the treatment regimen and looked at it at later on after treatment of several weeks. So this is the area under the curve. This is the metabolite that I mentioned, this N-oxide via CYP3A4, about 20% of it. This is the normal. This is the hepatic dysfunction cohort. This is the renal dysfunction cohort. Really no difference between the different degrees of renal dysfunction or hepatic dysfunction. And then finally, we looked at the free drug because it's heavily bound to alpha-1 elastic glycoprotein. Um, the free drug was about the same across the particular cohorts. Bottom line from this drug is that this is single-dose, first-dose PK, and therefore may not be as good a picture as to what's happening as you continue the drug dosing in these patients. And that is a limitation. What we did do is continue the patients on drug, and we were able to come away with the following recommendations, that normal patients would have the standard dosing. Patients, depending on their degree of hepatic dysfunction, would need either dose reduction or couldn't tolerate it. And really and truly, even the renal dysfunction patients, we found that they couldn't tolerate the, the standard therapeutic dose. So we were able to come away with some recommendations, though I think the PK answer was limited by our misstep in not looking at that information after the patient been on the drug for many days. So let's go back to our patient, the original index patient, the gentleman with the stage two seminoma, two A seminoma, who had the first cycle, who had a surgery, who then went on with the first cycle of chemotherapy, developed neutropenic sepsis, got admitted, needed required hemodialysis, had a modified regimen. And subsequently, his, his renal function recovered. He had one more cycle of the, what is the recommended standard of care. Staging post that treatment showed no detectable disease. And I'm pleased to tell you that nine years later, this gentleman is fine and well. So he's in one of the really uh, good responding groups. So in summary, and leaving time for some questions, which I'm happy to answer, I hope I've given you an insight into why it is absolutely imperative that you have a prerequisite knowledge of the clinical pharmacology principles underpinning individualized therapeutics, particularly in special populations, but we should advance this thesis into all our patients. We really need to achieve information from clinical trials and clinical studies that gives us information about PK and PD and dosing, but you require these sort of so-called clinical pharmacology studies, as the industry calls them. And the same is true for patients with hepatic dysfunction. But I think importantly, and 
worth emphasizing, and it's something all of us I know are aware of, is that you've really got to know about your drug. And to individualize therapy, we've really got to know as much as we can. I would argue, although the institutional leadership believes in population health, that when you get individual ill health, as is often the case when we're seeing patients in the clinic or in the inpatient arena, individualization trumps population. It's got to, because we're changing drugs, we're modifying management, and the individualization becomes top of the list. So I have to acknowledge the patients, without whom these studies would never have been able to be accomplished, and their families. I want to also acknowledge my colleagues in the Hemonc section, who are great and contribute by referring patients to these types of studies. We, we must also note that it takes a huge effort of infrastructure the study coordinators, the investigational pharmacists, and our research nurses who contribute to making these studies work and allow us to do it. I have a number of collaborators in the Alliance for Clinical Trials and Oncology, and we also have collaborators throughout the US and Europe in major cancer centers. But without this collaborative approach, we cannot undertake these studies because the patients are not that frequent in any one center. So, I'm happy to answer questions, but I would remind you that I stand here under the flag of Wales. <laughs> and the flag of Wales has a griffin, a red dragon. And the red dragon basically exemplifies the persona and the aggression of the Welsh population. <laughs> Particularly when they're being somewhat suppressed by the English. <laughs> so I'm happy to take questions and thank you for your attention. We have 10 minutes. Great, thank you very much. Larry. Well, uh, great, as always, just incredibly talented. My second favorite Welshman, you know, Dylan Thomas, <laughs> had a great line, Rage Against the Dagger of the Night of a White. And so the patients that they went to this, yeah. Do you think they go into it because they're it's hope against hope, or are they doing it because they figure, you know, I can I can do something with it later in my life and if I can push that as forward or is it a combination of the I would say that it's probably more the altruistic um, persona and the altruistic thought the patient has. Often or not, the drugs that we're dealing with have a very low likelihood of response in some of the tumors that the patients have and the advanced stage. So they're doing it, and they often ask, are you going to get information out of this, my participation in the study, that could help another patient down the line? So I think their altruistic aspect is probably higher in their mind than, they th than thinking, oh, I'm going to get a response or a cure. So I, I would say your second, your second aspect is the most relevant one. Rich. Well, I love to go through the interesting stuff. We have this whole class, multiple classes now of medical medications. I started with NIB and NIB, and now you're talking about peptidized. Is there a way to classify the genetic handling of these on a class basis? Let's say to have a, a drug that didn't do anything except for what happens to yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we're getting to the point where we're understanding more about the genetics, the germline genetics, but also the genetics of the targets. 
And maybe we, we well, all I'm suggesting is that using the ClinFarm principles are helpful, but the genetics might add another tool to our ability to choose the right drug to, in fact, enhance the likelihood of a successful therapeutic outcome. So the answer is yes. We should be using those tools where they have been proven biomarkers. Whether it will affect the classification of the NIB, the MAB, or the, the IB, whatever, I don't know. But, but certainly from the practical point of view of prescribing and optimizing therapy, call it precision medicine, call it individualized therapeutics, I don't care. But get it right for the patient and try to choose the best drug for the best time at the best dose and the best schedule. So, yeah, we should be using that genetic information to guide us. And we know we do that, hopefully the more successful we'll be. Come on, Sydney. Sorry. Just an extension of, of this question. As I was listening to your presentation, it's, it's really amazing, despite the progress that we have in molecular biology, the next generation sequencing, gene expression arrays, and the micro and the non-coding arrays, we cannot predict in the principles of classic pharmacology, this is not being fast. You're giving drug, you're measuring drug levels, but without this, we cannot take progress in this speaks for the role of a clinical pharmacology section in any of the Well, I, I appreciate you uh, enhancing the power of our section, but I think you're absolutely right. We, we only know so much. And, and there is nothing, nothing more different than an individual patient because the patient has proteins that handle drug, that change the drug distribution, that changes metabolism, and then the target proteins. And we don't have a way right now of being able to synthesize the effects of all those different aspects of the pharmacolo pharmacological paradigm of drug dose versus drug effect and all the variability therein. I would like to suggest that going down the line, and I know this is actually starting to happen in Mayo, they have it integrated into the medical record, but in, in, um, some, um, in Amsterdam, in the cancer center in Amsterdam, they are actually doing a study where they now have a patient's genotype on a credit card, and that can be taken around to any hospital they go, there's about five hospitals participating, and they take that with them if they turn up at the hospital, either for an outpatient visit or they turn up as an inpatient. And these hospitals have the IT support to help integrate that information into drug choices. But you're, you're right, you're still not quite, we're not, we're not good enough yet to predict everything. You're absolutely right. Sure, John. When you showed the slides of evaluating um, a drug in the setting of impaired renal function, can you say how you factor in the, the effect of the drug on the already impaired renal function. In other words, you're, you find a way to, to set up a dose, but how do you factor into that with that drug? Will that be worsening the renal function, therefore? Right, so, so, so what we do is we monitor creatinine routinely in all of these studies as part of the, almost like a weekly or, le or more frequent basis. If there are significant changes, we tend then to draw limited blood samples to look at the concentration of drug as well. If the toxicity becomes so bad and the change is so dramatic, we stop the treatment. So there are, there are, I didn't get into the nuances of the stopping rules and everything, but there are clear stopping rules about if you see something change so dramatically that you think it is related to drug, then you stop treatment. John. John. Hi, yes. Sometimes, irrespective of organ dysfunction in our patients, we get these you know, 
slow metabolizers or rapid metabolizers, and often nothing, it doesn't, nothing tips us off until they have a problem. <laughs> terrible toxic uh, uh, side effect, and then we consult these. Is there anything that can tip us off to folks like this? Yeah, um, so in the big picture, Greg Slangalis and I are now working together. Uh, and in 2006, we actually had 2006, 2008, and 2009. We actually brought some people in to talk about using genetics to try to guide patients and avoid exactly the scenario that you're describing, and using the patient's genotype to help upfront say, ah, you know what? I don't think you should use that dose of that drug in this patient. You're absolutely right. So Greg and I are actually trying to work to get a panel in here probably in the next two months that we're going to start to validate and then maybe roll out in certain areas in a phased basis so that this genetic information can be made available on patients coming in the hospital ultimately across the board so that that can be part of the medical record. But most importantly is to make it user-friendly such that if we just showed you the SNPs and the variants and the copy number and this and the other, I think most of us would start to implode our neuronal uh, synapses. So what we've got to do is we've got to use IT to help guide. This is what we found in the genetics. Based on, if you want to use this drug, this is what the phenotype should be, and this is what the guide is. That IT aspect is critical. Mayo have actually already done this for about 13 what they call drug gene pairs, and it ranges across things like antidepressants, opiates, um, they, they have it for tacrolimus, they have it for... Uh, Diperidamine dehydrogenase for 5-FU. So they've already done this for 13 drugs where routinely, if you go to Mayo, you have your genotype done for this particular genetic reason. And that is incorporated in the medical record. And in the record, if you go to prescribe a drug and it has a genetic variant in the patient that means you shouldn't use the regular dose, you get a sort of, they've used a, a traffic light signaling uh, paradigm. You get a red light saying, you know, you really want to think about this. So that's where we're hopefully going here too. Because if we really believe we're an academic medical center, that's what we've got to do. Chris. So to kind of follow up on that, um, there's just so much information now, not even talking about the genetics yet, which is just coming online. How do you as a professional deal with that? Is, it, is clinical pharmacology online the best we have, or is there other places to access that? So, so from the genetic point of view and the genetic point of view about drugs in particular, and I'm going to stay focused on genetics and drugs, okay, because I think, A, that's your question, and B, what, that's, there's actually some excellent resources. One of them is Pharma, Pharma GKB, which is a resource, a database that's run by NIH, and they talk about the gene variants, and they talk about the drugs, and they also refer you to the literature as to if you have a certain gene variant, where and what you should do with a certain drug. And this is a great resource. What we're hoping to do with Greg Songalis and the, shall I say, the buy-in from the powers that be on the fifth floor, is to bring some of that in a limited number of drugs into our institution and roll it out on a phased basis over the next somewhere like six months or so. But Pharma GKB is Pharma GKB is the place. Pharma Genetics Knowledge Base is the place to go. Great. I think we're on time. Thank you very much for your time.